So Colossians chapter 4, we're going to wrap up our time together in this book of the Bible today. We're going to run through the entirety of the chapter, skim over it, talk about some of the things that are particularly applicable to us, and wrap up our time there. And hopefully this has been an awesome time for you. If I don't know where you are. Some of you, you know, I know you've kind of been challenged to read more of the Bible this year. I don't know how your Bible reading plan has been going. Uh, but at the very least, if you've hung out with us for the last several weeks, you can mark Colossians off. You can say, I did that. We read that. And so, man, this, this is an exciting thing. We, we really want to practice what we preach in this. We want to dig into God's Word and let it set the tone and let it lay out the roadmap so that the next thing we talk about week to week is the next thing, next thing in the Bible. And so here we are finishing our time in Colossians. I want to maybe wrap up some of the things that we've talked about. The beginning of this book was very lofty language about the identity of Jesus and the good news of what he has accomplished for us, such that this might be the loftiest and the highest language that's used in the Bible to describe who Jesus is. In fact, that he is co-eternal with the Father. He was the firstborn of creation. He has the power over creation as the firstborn son, but he also has the first, he's also the firstborn of the dead. So he has the power as we celebrate this Easter, even over death. And because Jesus is this great and amazing person, the person and the work of Jesus is the representation, the image of God Almighty for us to see. So that if we have any questions about what God looks like, we can look at Jesus knowing that according to Colossians, the fullness of God, the deity of God is present with us, is living with us, is sympathizing with us as our high priest alongside us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is incarnate. He's God made flesh. And as a result of this, since we know that, there is something that is changed in us when we believe it, something that is transformed in us when we see the truth and the power of Jesus Christ. But as it changes us, it changes the way we live. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've seen the last couple of chapters of Colossians, some really applicable, hopefully highly practical things that are for you and I. Especially for you and I who call ourselves this, like, this baby church, this little church thing. We're not even a year old. Similar probably to the makeup of Colossians. Not, probably not a, a long existing church, but some of these applicable things hopefully have been, have been practical for you. And so as a result, we've been just kind of walking through it and saying, hey, this is how we illustrate this. Um, this is helpful because for the first half of the book, we spend a great deal of time digging into the language, digging into what's going on and saying, okay, this is, this is what this means. This seems mysterious. Uh, we talked about this. I don't know how often you use the word ascetic or asceticism. I mean, I use it all the time, um, that, but that's just me. You probably don't use the word asceticism a lot. And so as we go through the first couple of chapters of Colossians, there's, there's, got, there's some unfolding and unpacking and some, some exposing of the meaning of the text that goes on there. But toward the end of the chapter or the end of the book, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, it's pretty explicit. All right, fathers, don't be harsh with your children. Right? Don't provoke them to anger. Right? Husbands, love your wives. And, it, and it's highly practical, hopefully highly applicable, and I don't have to stand up here and say, when he says husbands love your wives, what he really means is, right, and, and then come up with some, some made-up idea. That, but instead, it seems pretty explicit. And so that's what we'll get a load of for this last chapter of Colossians, beginning in verse 2. Here we go. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justus. These 
are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. There are two distinct parts of this chapter with two distinct themes. We'll spend the first larger portion of our time unfolding verse 2 through verse 6 and his last practical bit of instruction to this church. And then we'll wrap up thinking about what we learn from all of these names that he's dropping and the greetings and welcome and admonition that he gives for the last half. So let's begin verse 2 through 6. And I think what you'll see here that jumps out are four distinct forms of communication that Paul wants this church to think deeply about and to practice in their own lives. The first is the communication, the language of prayer. The encouragement that he has for these people to engage in communicating with God through prayer. The second is the language of the communication of proclamation. The language that he hopes he has, as well as the Colossian church, in sharing this mystery of Christ to the people around them and the people around him. The third thing is the language of their performance and the ways in which what they do and how they live speaks apparently something quite explicitly to the people around the Colossian church. And then lastly is this language of what it looks like to be growing in Christ. The language of growing toward His perfection and being sanctified, being made holy like Him. So you have this quick little synopsis, I hope, of the kinds of admonition he gives to us. First is with respect to prayer. The second is with respect to proclamation. The next would be with respect to how they live. And the fourth one would be how they speak to the people around them, the outsiders, in such a way that they see Christ. So let's just walk through that. Beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, over the next couple of verses, you're going to see him just tell us to do some things, right? He's going to tell us you need to do this. And I want to maybe lay out, hopefully, the, the mode in which I want to encourage you in the same way that I think Paul wants to encourage us. And I want to hopefully do that by illustrating what we ought not to do, or at least in my own experience, what is really ineffective. I love, for all sorts of selfish and probably sinful reasons, watching little league sports. Not because I really care what's going on in the field, but it's really fun to watch little league sports and the interaction between the coach let's say coach, depending on the age, and the parents. Parents slash coach, right? And I love watching it. And I've seen just some of the most awful, terrible coaching that, t- that goes on there. And, and, and it's just because, God bless these people, um, they're at the beginning of the year, they're like, who wants to coach? And everyone goes... And then there's that guy who got to the party late, and he's like, oh, we volunteered you, you are our coach, right? And he's like, I don't even know what sport this is. And he's the coach, he's the guy to whom we've entrusted our children to teach them the game and teach them the fundamentals of this particular sport. And he is ill-equipped, or he's over-equipped, and he really wished he'd have gotten that New York Yankees job, but he's stuck doing Little League. Either way, it's really funny for strictly sadistic purposes. So, so here we have this guy. He doesn't know anything. And, and I love listening to the things that, that these people yell, and parents do this sometimes too, that are, that are completely obvious, but they really believe they're making a difference in the outcome of the game by yelling these obvious things, right? Have you ever heard these things? Just, I mean, this is essentially what they're doing. They're like, go faster. Do better. And the kid, you know, he's like, he's playing the sport, and he's like, oh, you're right. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, but thank you for telling me that. Now I'll do it. 
I remember one of my favorite things, I, I watched, a, a, I, I got to help, I got, again, because I got suckered into this, I got to help a Little League baseball team, and, and the catcher, really good, good catcher, and his parents, you know how this works, they were still living out their own lives uh, through the catcher's son, and they were pretty much thought that everything the catcher did or didn't do was a bad or a good reflection on them. It happens, it's quite common, and, and so this kid, play comes to the plate, the ball comes in from the outfield toward the catcher, all the catcher has to do is catch it and make a tag. Um, he misses the ball, bounces off his glove, tries to catch it, just misses it, the throw was a little off, and his parents and a couple other people, um, in, including the, let's call him a coach again, they go, like, it's like they knew in unison what they were going to do, they were a cheerleading squad that had practiced this, and they go, catch the ball! And, and it was just like the catcher was like, oh, you're right. I forgot why I was wearing this glove. Thanks for reminding me. Next time I'll do it. As if not knowing that he ought to catch the ball was the problem that, that, that made him not make that play. Catch the ball. Yeah. The, oh, thank, thanks, parents. Right. And all, you know, just a little a tidbit for if you want to talk about how this may apply for some of you who have got kids in sports. Last week we saw that fathers and mothers should love their children in such a way that they're not provoking them and they should not be harsh with them. Here's just a little tidbit of information. When that kid hears you yell catch or whatever, all that kid hears is my parents disapprove of me in public. And so next time you're only allowed to yell good job, good try, good hustle. Here we go. Get them next time. Right. You got it. It'll help you and your little league coach immensely because that's what that kid needs at that moment. Instead of yelling something obvious. I remember, um, I, I, I don't love basketball. I, I'm tall and kind of athletic, so people mistake me for a basketball player. So they're like, oh, you must be good at basketball. <laughs> you would think. And uh, I, I foul, I foul. Woo! I can foul like you wouldn't even believe. And so I'm tall, and so that means I have to be down low and, and take the punishment of the game that other people deserve. And I'm down there, and, and there was this kid and his obnoxious mother, God bless her in the name of Jesus or something, and he liked to stand outside, and if you know anything about basketball, he liked to throw up bricks. Just that's what he thought he brought to the team. Like some point, maybe he's going to knock the goal down with the bricks that he's throwing at the goal, and maybe one of them will fall in. I don't know. He regularly just throws up terrible shots. And I remember he throws up a brick, and, it, and I'm, I'm working, I'm blocking out so I can get the rebound and score because he's not going to. Throws a brick, hits the front of the rim, just clangs like you know how it sounds if you know basketball. Flies off, and I hear his mother in the whole crowd because this is what happens with people with that gift. Everyone gets quiet when they talk. You know how that happens, right? So everyone gets quiet, and she yells, rebound! Thanks. You're, I didn't know. You're right. Like, I didn't know your son was throwing up bricks that I have to clean up and score. You're right. I didn't know. Thanks for telling me. I'll never do that again. Right? And so I don't want to stand up here and be that bad coach who just says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Do it. Do better. Pray for us that God may open us a door for the word. You better do it. You better stop not doing it. You better start doing it. Walk in wisdom with outsiders. You better walk in wisdom. You, you, you walk in wisdom. I'm, I'm going to assume you can read and comprehend the commands and suggestions given to you and I and hopefully maybe illustrate the ways in which we see this play out. Because the temptation, I think, is to miss one of the things he fi that he finishes with is that we're supposed to be gracious. And no one, no one, no one has ever had a life-changing experience by someone who yelled at them shameful things. I see this in our marriage all the time. I've never wanted to do something um, when my wife just tells me that I'm terrible at it. That's never made me go, you're right, I should be better. And guess what? It never works for me either when I say, hey, this is really bad. And so what if maybe there's some technique here that we have that we ought to walk in these ways. We ought to learn from these things. Take these kinds of commands seriously, but do so graciously. And be the kind of coach that comes alongside and says, let me show you how to do this. Let me tell you what this looks like. Or we could stand up here for the next 20 minutes and I can scream, you better do it. But that wouldn't change me and that doesn't inspire me and that doesn't make me want to do anything different. So when he says pray, and he says continue steadfastly in prayer, and he tells us that we ought to be doing it regularly and there's a way in which we ought to do it. We ought to do it with steadfastness, persistence. We ought to do it with watchfulness. And then he says we ought to do it with gratitude. That is thankfulness or thanksgiving. I want to show you maybe the ways in which this plays out for you and me and what we ought to believe such that these things will happen. 
We always want to differentiate between the good advice of the text and the good news. The good advice is, yes, you should pray more. Here are the top 10 benefits of praying, right? And here are the top 10 benefits of praying with thanksgiving and with watchfulness and with steadfastness. And here are the benefits of doing that. But those benefits and and even our best day of obeying this doesn't even scratch the surface of the good news that's underneath it. And that is that we are to pray because we have a God who listens. One of the greatest miracles and the most mysterious things for us to contemplate is that our God and Father, the creator of the universe, not only hears us when we call out to him, but like a loving father, he longs for us to call out to him. And there's incredibly good news under that. And so I don't want to stand here and just say, you better pray more, but I want to encourage you and inspire you. Did you know that you have a God and Father who desires to hear from you? Desires the communion of His children. So much so that He sent His beloved and perfect Son so that you and I, the wayward and wandering and rebellious Son, might have access back to our Father. He loved us so much. He desires our presence, our company, our communion, and to hear our voice call out to Him so much that He was willing to lay down the life of His only Son. And that's incredibly good news. And hopefully it will change the way that you think about prayer rather than saying, I better do this. What would it look like for a loving child to desire the love and affection of a parent? I mean... Is that the kind of relationship, if you fast forward 10, 15 years, that I want for my own daughter? I, I, I mean, this, I'm sorry, my mom might podcast this, but every once in a while there's a, you need to call your mother, and, like, and there's a, ah, you call her. Um, but then there's other times, if I'm not thinking like a dishonorable son, I'm thinking, man, I, I want to tell my mom, I want to tell my father. And wouldn't it be great 10, 15 years from now if my daughters, instead of thinking, better call my dad. He's going to be mad if I don't. What if it was like, man, I have a father who desperately wants to hear from his children. I have a father who loves and cares for me and does not want to be alienated from me, but I have a father who wants to love and encourage me. What if I were to call him and give him that opportunity? So also, infinitely more, to an infinitely greater degree, our loving father desires to hear from you and to me. And so we pray. We speak to God knowing, knowing that He hears us. Jesus addressed this directly in Luke chapter 18. He told a different parable uh, at two different times about this. The first one we saw a few weeks ago uh, when Brian preached through the parable of, of the servant who comes and wakes the guy up and demands. And I encourage you to, if you want to, you can find that on the website. But there's another place that's very similar in Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray. And to not lose heart. And he said to them, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that same city who kept coming to him, to the judge, and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while the judge refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen people, who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find that kind of faith on earth? So Jesus tells a story about a person who hears the demands of a person and then yields to those demands, not because there's any good in his heart, but because he just wants that person to leave them alone. And he says, how much more if, if this unjust person who doesn't care about people and doesn't care about God, if he's going to give in to the demands of this persistent person, how much more does a God and Father who is actually good care to hear about the demands, the persistent cries out of his children, his chosen people? 
And so we cry out with persistence. We, pry, we cry out and we pray. We speak to God with persistence. But be diligent. When you fail, remember, like this, this is something that God wants to hear from us. Let's, let's love and cherish our Father more until the point where we have communion with Him on a regular basis. So here's some techniques that might help you. If you ever find yourself praying the same old things about the same old things to the point that it puts you to sleep, you might be doing it wrong. So when I tell you, hey, let's pray with persistence, hopefully you don't try to expect different results by doing the same thing because we all know that's insanity, right? That's the definition. We don't want to just do it again. So don't just say, oh, I need to pray more and do it differently. But it says there's a way in which we do it that might be helpful. It says pray not only steadfastly with persistence because we know God hears us, but it says pray watchfully, being watchful in our prayer. Now, this has a couple of different layers. It's meant to all first remind us probably of what Jesus commanded His disciples to do in the garden. And as He said to His disciples, look, watch my back. Be watchful and pray. And what do you know? The disciples did the same thing that you and I do when you pray at night. They fell asleep. And Jesus says, watch and pray. And so we're meant to have this picture of alertness in prayer. We, We want to pray with energy. So here's an idea. Maybe check your schedule and see if and when prayer might fit in and see how high of a priority it fits into your schedule. Is it the last thing in the day? Is it the thing that puts you to sleep? Because I could be wrong, but if it's the last thing, it might be the least. Maybe you save the best for last. Maybe you save your best work for those last waning bits of consciousness before you pass out. The rest of us are kind of a little foggy right before we drift off. And so here's an idea. What if prayer wasn't something that we tacked on to the end of the day only, but what if prayer was something we meant to do in the energetic moments of our day? Might it be easier to be watchful? But it also means in watchfulness that we're aware of what we're praying for. So this goes back to what we talked about last week. It's hard to pray for things that you're insensitive to. It's hard to pray for the hurts and the needs of the people around you if you're only consumed with yourself. It's impossible. It's impossible to have a desire to go to our Father with requests for people for which we care nothing. It's impossible. And so by watchfulness, it also means awareness. So here's the prayer to start with. God, help me care about what's going on. It's hard for me to pray to you, pray for you and ask God to perform a miracle on your behalf if I don't even love you or care for you enough to know what's going on. And so this watchfulness is meant to say we, we do so with alertness and we do so with awareness, looking for ways in which we can love the people around us by praying for them. It says also to do so with thanksgiving. We, we started this in our, in our own family. We're trying to teach this kind of idea, hopefully to do better at it than, than, than what I, I've probably done in my own life. And so we have family prayer time every night, and we just start by saying, hey, what are the things in this day that we can thank God for? What are the things we can thank God for? And yes, uh, it turns into, you know, thank God for my pillow and for my blankie. And, and there's a sense in which I, I look at it and I go, like, well, that's silly. But that's, there's a real consciousness my daughter is teaching to me and hopefully to us that there are things around us for which we have great reason great cause to be grateful god ultimately is the father who gives good and perfect gifts there's no shadow turning in him and as a result we are blessed if you want to pray this way just start by looking on huffington post or any sort of news website and find all sorts of international news and look at the conditions in which people live And ask yourself, have you done anything special to live in the level of privilege and comfort in which we now live? We didn't choose where we were going to be born or the situation in which we were going to be born. And so we have much to be grateful for, don't we? So there's always a watchfulness and a thankfulness. And if you're struggling to pray, just start with the things that you like. Start with the things that are meaningful to you and thank God for them. And then, what I would say is like the last technique that might wrap all this up is the best places where we learn about prayer and about watchfulness in prayer and about gratitude in prayer and about persistence in prayer is in God's Word. So you could pick any psalm in the Bible or anywhere in the Bible and just begin to read it as it will teach you to pray. 
So if you're like me, when you go, I'm going to pray now, what you do is you go, I pray the same things and I say all the same words. We do this when we pray out loud even. You can see that, you know, the dear Heavenly Father, dear Heavenly Father, it's, we're filling it with words that don't necessarily mean anything to us. And so if you get stuck in that rut, pick up the Bible and begin to read through it. So the shepherd psalm, for example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or I'm not in need of anything. You can pray just beginning to read God's word. The Lord is my shepherd. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you are my shepherd. Thank, thank you, God, that you care for me like a sheep that constantly wanders off. Thank you that you are like a shepherd who drags me back to the flock. I shall not want. Thank you, God. You give me what is sufficient for life eternal. He leads me behind, beside still waters and green pastures. He... he does all these things for his namesake. I mean, you can walk through every single passage and realize that God is drawing us into a conversation with him in which all we have to do is follow along and say, thank you and God help me. God, forgive me that I don't remember that you're a shepherd. God, I confess to you, I I don't think you're a shepherd right now. Right now I have a hard time believing. We confess this in prayer. But I also want to give you a, 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 maybe a broad perspective of prayer. You don't have to follow me there, but if you want to take a note of it, in Revelation 5, if you skip to the end of the book, we see what happens with prayer. And so we not only pray persistently, and we not only pray um, hopefully, uh, watchfully, and not only gratefully with thanksgiving, but we pray rightly for the right kinds of things. And when we pray to God, it says here in chapter 4, Paul says, here's what you should pray. You should pray that the mystery of his word would have an opportunity to go out. Pray for opportunities for you and I to share this good news. If you skip all the way to Revelation chapter 5, at the very end of this story, all the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are drawn together in the presence of God around the throne and they bow because we have access to God through the Lamb. And it says, between the throne and the elders and the living creatures saw the lamb and it looked like it had been slain and yet even though it was slain we saw this a few weeks ago it was still standing and it had seven horns which are meant to be a picture of his authority it had seven eyes which are meant to be a picture of his wisdom which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne that is he took the fate of the universe into his hand when he'd taken the stroll the 20 Four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. And each was holding a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense that you would burn and it would be fragrant. And those bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. So good news. If you find yourself thinking, oh no, does God even hear me when I pray? Right? Is there a God that even is listening? You're in good company. And I want to encourage you with the end of this story. God not only hears your prayer, they don't just bounce off the ceiling, but the prayers for His will to bring this glory through the nations by saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every neighborhood, every city. He's saving. And they will be the aroma they will be the smell in our nostrils as we, as we thank God and worship Him forever for saving us. You can pray knowing that our God hears and your prayers don't go to waste. But we also want to pray rightly. We want to ask things of God that are consistent with His character. And this is a learning process. So did you see that the prayers that are apparently saved at the end are the prayers for the Lamb to save His people? And those prayers are, are burning in bowls of incense. And they probably include the prayer of Jesus, the prayers of Isaiah, the, the prayers of Moses, the prayers of all of us when we pray for God to save people whom we love. They don't disappear, but God is collecting them. And that means we pray rightly. We pray for things that are consistent with His character and with His will. So, when my daughter comes up to me and asks me for a pony, I typically up to this point, have said no. And it's not because I don't love her, but I could be wrong. That just might not be what's best. Might not be what she really needs. And so if she's like, Daddy, I want a pony. Yes, come to me with those prayers. Come to me with those requests. That kind of supplication is welcome. But expect in return a good explanation of why that's not a good idea and not good for her. 
If God's ultimate goal is to draw us near to him through Jesus Christ, then be careful we're not praying for things that we would gratefully and happily make an idol and worship in his place. Most of the things that we ask God for, I fear, would take us away from him. And our God is good and loving, and so therefore he is not going to give them to us. If my wife comes up to me and she's like, Jonathan, I would like a boyfriend. That is not you. I'm going to say no. Because to say yes would mean to lose her. And so if we go to God and we say, God, I want this, and God in his infinite wisdom knows how selfish and childish we are and how we'll probably, if, we, if he gives it to us, we'll worship it instead of him and worship his creation and the trinkets rather than the creator and the good father who gives good gifts, then I suspect God will probably go, I don't think that's best. So just know our God has an infinite perspective. In the same way that I don't think a pony, and you might agree, is not the best thing for our family at this point in time. So also, infinitely more, our God knows what is good for us and what will draw us closer to Him. What will bring us joy and bring Him glory. And so we ought to weigh our prayers accordingly. Don't ask for things that don't give God glory. Don't ask for things that don't draw the nations to Him. I had a, a good friend of mine um, who this, this was an interesting lesson. I, I tried to teach about prayer. And he said, you know what? He, he thought he was being helpful, but he said, you know what? One day I just asked God for a Cadillac. And wouldn't you know it, by the end of that week, I had a Cadillac. And he really believed that God, I mean, like he believed in prayer because God answered his prayer for a Cadillac. And I was like, all right, buddy, what did you do with that Cadillac? Did you like, I don't know, sell it and give it to the poor to, to help people with it? Or did you like drive people to, to worship with that? Or do you like, you know, what did you do that brought glory to God? He's like, well, it just made me really happy. And I could be wrong. Maybe God is this magical gumball machine that if you push the right buttons and put in the right dollar amount, out comes something really neat. Could be wrong. However, I think the scripture points towards something a bit different. And it might be idolatry to think that God would give us something that we would love more than him. So I said, is there any way in which you brought God glory through that Cadillac? He was like, no. I was like, I think in the Old Testament that God only blesses people so that they will be a blessing to others. So did you bless anyone with that Cadillac? No. Okay, um, I think God hears the prayer of his people. The Bible tells us that he is present in a powerful way with the brokenhearted. Did you, did you pray for that, cat, that Cadillac out of your brokenheartedness and God comforted you with it? No. In fact, he spent money that he already had to buy this Cadillac. So I could be wrong, but I think that might be a good example of the ways in which we often talk about God's blessing and his answer to prayer that is unworthy of him. Our God knows what is best for us, and he would never give us something that would distract us from him. And so we pray not only persistently, we not only pray watchfully, we not only pray with gratitude, but we pray rightly, knowing that God's ultimate will is for the salvation of his people. The mystery of God revealed to us in Jesus is that he rescues people who are far off and draws them close in Jesus. And God would never give you and I something that would destroy that. So let's pray accordingly. The next thing we see is the way in which this changes what they declare. And so I invite you to maybe think about prayer in the same way here. It says that pray for us, and he says pray that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. And so the next step here is that Paul wants you and I to pray not only for things that we see and we ought to offer up to God that are right and in will and consistent with his character, we're growing in that. We don't always get that right. I mean, I regularly pray for things as dumb as a pony, but I go to God and he patiently goes, I love you anyway. But also, there's a sense in which we pray for something that's greater than ourselves, and that is for opportunities for the good news and the hope that you and I have been given in Jesus to be on our lips as they go to other people. It says pray that we have an open door. So here's something I will challenge you on. If you, if you find yourself struggling with prayer, I want to give you a prayer that I promise you God will answer every single time. 
You're like, what's the magical prayer that God will answer? This is the prayer God will always answer. Pray that God will open a door in your life for the word of good news to go out. If you're struggling like, oh, God doesn't answer my prayer, I'm going to give you the, this is the gimme. Pray in accordance with Revelation 5 that God would save people and that he would open a door for you and I to share this good news, this mystery that Jesus would save people like us. Pray for an opportunity for that to happen. And I promise you, you will get a humbling and powerful lesson in the power of prayer. Because God will answer it. Tomorrow morning, when you go to work, when you encounter the people around you, He will answer this prayer. He has put people around you. He's put them in your life. He didn't put them in mine. I don't know them. They're not my friends. They're not my coworkers. They're yours. And when we pray for this open door, God puts those people around us consistently. Not for our own pleasure, but because God is doing something and he is opening up doors. Need I remind you? For those of you in this room that would call yourself a follower of Jesus and you you feel like you've been transformed and inspired and encouraged by this good news that Jesus saves us, you probably didn't stumble upon that in the desert. You probably didn't dig up a Bible while looking for treasure and then discover that on your own. I could be wrong, but I bet someone shared that with you. I bet someone loved you and cared for you enough to tell you the good news of God's love for you. So is it crazy to think that God would want you and I to do the same? So we pray in such a way that we are looking for opportunities. We have to be watchful. We have to be grateful first that God would even share with us His Word, much less that we would declare it. And that the mystery of Christ in our interactions would be made known. Because a scary thing will happen here. When you ask God for things consistent with His character, He will always answer. And you will get what you pray for. And you will find yourself surrounded by opportunities to share this good news, so much so that if you're good and human, you will be terrified by them. You will be overwhelmed with your own sense of insufficiency. You will be overwhelmed with how little you really know. You'll be overwhelmed with how small and insignificant you are. And yet, at the same time, what an amazing mystery of Christ that He would open doors for His good news to go out through insufficient, inadequate people like you and me. Because that's what He does. So pray that we would make it clear. Not only in the way that we speak, it says, but also... We declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Because when God answers this prayer, make no mistake about it, you're asking for something that could be trouble. From the beginning and even to now, to seek opportunities to share this good news of what Christ has done for us will mean adversity. Quite literally here, He says, pray that the door would open, that we could declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So there's layers here. The most shallow and superficial layer is that he's like, pray that the door would be open for us to share Jesus. That is, pray that the prison door would be open, I can get out of jail so I can tell people about Jesus. But underneath that, he's asking for opportunity. Would the door open up that we could share it, but make no mistake about it, that mystery of Christ that has changed our hearts and is currently making us new will get you in trouble. It's not any different now. The message of this good news of Jesus challenges the power structures of the present age. It always has, and it is always dangerous to proclaim. And that's why he says, look, open the door, but this is what will put you in chains. Now, we live in a great society where we're not getting thrown in jail right now for talking about Jesus. We live in a great culture that, that is really, really nice to Christians and that we, they don't, they're not persecuted in any 
real way. There's, there's some ways in which meh, it makes it kind of difficult to be a Christian, and, and we're asked to be quiet a, a few times. But when we really radically proclaim the good news of Jesus, it changes the way that people see us, and trouble is sure to come. We may not be thrown in prison, but to ask God to answer this prayer may cost you. It may cost you friends. God forbid it might cost you your family. It might cost you your job. If we were like most Christians in a lot of the different parts of the world, it might even cost us our lives. And all I would say to inspire you is this good is this good news is so good, it's worth losing those things for. The way in which we make it clear is not just the way we speak, which is what he asked, but then he follows up in verse 5, he says that we ought to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, typically, this is where like the preacher makes a big rant on consumerism in our culture and how consumerism is the devil, but consumerism actually will help you understand this text. It says that we should... Uh, Walk in wisdom with outsiders, and it says making the best use of the time. Literally, that means like to buy back or to get a bargain or buy up. And so I don't know how much you get excited about a bargain. I get really pumped about when I save money, um, and I, I, I get really excited. And that's exactly the same sort of excitement that we're meant to have here for the way in which we treat people that don't believe in Jesus. There's a bargain to be had. There's eternal life. And all that's left to do is not to die on the cross for them because Jesus already did it, but the bargain is that all we have to do is tell someone about it. God will provide the opportunity. He'll give you the relationships that are important. He'll give you the the ability to win the trust of the people around you. But when we walk in such a way with wisdom, we begin to make use of the time and we get a really good deal. So lastly, therefore, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I would just simply draw attention to the fact that it says, let your speech be gracious, so marked by grace, but then seasoned, more literally sprinkled with salt. It does not say, let your language be salty, and seasoned with a little grace. This is important. I don't know anybody off the top of my head who's ever been argued or shamed into following Jesus. You're an idiot, you're wrong, believe in Jesus. Oh, thank you for that. Okay. That would be a salty and true statement. But that isn't what God has meant for us here. Instead, our speech is meant to be defined by grace and just sprinkled with salt. As my grandfather, the third generation wannabe chef, they had restaurants, but he would always say, you can always add salt later. You can never take it out. When you're cooking something, you know how true that is. You can always add some later. You can never take it out. And so our words are meant to be defined by grace. People who love Jesus ought to be the most patient and loving and caring people because our words are defined by grace. Resist the temptation to speak in salty language rather than gracious language. So that you'll know how to answer each person. For some people, the most compelling reason to be open to the good news of Jesus is not that they had heard a calculated or powerful argument. Like, that guy's really smart, therefore I want to follow Jesus. But if your testimony is similar to mine, then the thing that changed my life and drew me to Jesus because somebody cared enough to not give up on me. I mean, I already had, I knew this stuff. I, I'd, I already knew all the answers to all the questions. But what was compelling to me, what drew me to the love of Jesus, and I, had, and I knew this, this God and Father must be different if this is what people look like, is that these people just didn't give up on me. Instead of yelling, do better and shame on you if you don't, they said, man, I love you, I'm right with you. How can I pray for you and care for you? And the wisdom that you and I have as our words become gracious rather than salty is that we start to understand how we ought to answer answer each people. We don't bully people 
that are highly emotional. We don't give the boo-hoo speech to people who are highly intellectual. We know people well enough to know what compels them. And that's the kind of conduct you and I are meant to have. And so lastly, he runs through an entire picture of the ways in which this has lived, he's lived this out. He gives greetings. He gives encouragement. He says, this is what I want you to do. This is, I want hopefully in verse 18 to encourage, or verse 8 to encourage your hearts. He throws out some really cool stuff. Verse 9 is really interesting. He drops the name of a guy by the name of Onesimus. If you turn the page a little bit and you get to a book called Philemon, you'll realize that this book was written to Philemon, who was the slave owner of Onesimus. And remember how radically controversial it is to say to a slave instead of, like, kill your slave owner, but instead, like, St. Patrick, which I hope you guys remembered this last week, was ultimately a celebration of a guy who broke out of slavery and went back to encourage the people who used to be his owners. And he, putting his money where his mouth is, says, hey, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, he's one of you, and they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. And he sent Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, to go back so that he could encourage and love Philemon, his slave master. That blows my mind. That's radical gospel right there. I I don't see that. I would rather him go, and I don't know if you caught this reference last time, but I would rather him be like Jango to go back to kill the people who used to be his slave masters. Instead, he says, look, I'm sending Onesimus. You know what to do. He's going to love his slave master, not because he deserves to, but because his slave master needs to hear the gospel and be changed by it. He also makes reference to a guy by the name of Mark. I don't know if you caught that. There's a guy by the name of Mark, as we were reading in the book of Acts. Mark really let these people down. He failed, and yet, instead of condemning this person and saying, do better, you stink, he says, hey, Mark's coming, and he's a faithful guy. And he makes no reference to the fact that Mark had let them down. Instead, he just says, man, Mark, Mark's the guy. Continued to believe on him, didn't give up on him. And lastly, we saw at the very beginning eight weeks ago, when you've read this, when you've been encouraged by this, share it with others. And see that you read and share that encouragement with them. So here's what this looks like for us. We don't have a corner on the market in this good news of Jesus. Instead, we are just happy. We are just blessed recipients of this good news. And so therefore, we are not in competition for example, with even other churches in the city. Did you catch that? He said, there's a church, but it's a church did you hear that, that meets in a house. So they're at a different life stage. Some churches in the book of Acts, they met, in, they met in, in, in the synagogues, but apparently there's a church here that meets in a house. And instead of saying, hey, do things better and different than that church, he says, man, bless them, encourage them. The competition that the churches experience is not against one another. The competition is against the darkness that we fight with the good news of Jesus. And so we pray for that. We ask God for that. We ask God to bless us with that. And we happily participate in it. So I want to show you a tangible... Don't walk by that. I want to show you a tangible way in which this is happening around us. We are a part of a, a network called the SEND Network, and uh, it's called SEND North America. And this is a small stack. I didn't print out all the emails because I got about 100. This is a stack of cards sent by people who are praying for you. They're praying that we would have opportunities to love the people around us, that the doors would open. People, There's, there's one from Hawaii. I mean, I want to... Let's go plant a church in Hawaii, right? Right on the beach. I mean, there's just encouragement from people. I don't even know some of these people. There's one from Pennsylvania. Look, we're praying for you, and we're praying for your church's ministry in Sioux Falls. We are praying for God to send even other church planters to start more churches. And we don't even know this person, and they're writing us from Pennsylvania. There's some really cool stuff in here that I would even love to share with you. Um, there's, this is some of my favorite. These are, these are like little bitty pictures that some, some people wrote. Um, and, and I don't know what they knew about us, uh, but uh, if I can remember, I, I don't know what they told us about. I guess some people found out that we were, um, we were like meeting in a school, and so this, this girl, Aubrey, who's adorable, um, she's, she's like, drew a picture, I guess, of our church, and it has a banner, and it says, come 
to my church, please, right? Uh, can't beat that. And hope you find permanent church, right? <laughs> <It's>, I, <laughs> you can't beat that. My, my favorite, I, I got to find this guy. Okay, this kid is named Carter Tinker. I don't know who he is, but I like him. To Jonathan from Carter Tinker right there. Um, I hope I can help you. Thanks, Carter. It's a cross and a heart. Really nice kid. And then he says, I hope you find one. <laughs> Me too, Carter. Me too. I don't know what that means. <laughs> this, I, I have tons, I would love to share these with you. I have tons of these. Emails from all over the country. And they're people who, who are doing this. And I show this to you so that you realize the fact that you're in this room, I didn't know most of you a year ago. A lot of you I didn't know six months ago. Some of you I didn't know a couple weeks ago. And yet, apparently, God answers this prayer for the opportunities to come about that His good news would create community. And here's the evidence. So let's be a people who pray diligently, knowing that our Father hears and desires the company of His children. Let's pray boldly that God would use us and use these prayers to bring about, I mean, this is amazing, to bring about amazing things around us. And I'm convinced, some of you I know, it's got to be because of one of these, man. God must have heard the prayers of this, this woman in Seattle, and apparently God heard this prayer, and I probably met you as a result. So let's pray like this. Let's be a people who boldly pray watchfully, rightly, praying for things that God would bring glory to himself through and let's do so knowing that God is going to do something amazing. Let's be wise in the way we share it. Let's declare it boldly, looking for opportunities to make the most of our time. Let's respond and worship to today. I want to, to close this in prayer and the ushers are going to come forward and then we're going to go back into a time of worship and declare this good news that God has done for us. God, you are good. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, uh, we thank you that you use broken and flawed means to do amazing things amongst us. Uh, you use the simple prayers of broken and needy people to do amazing things. So God, would you fulfill that now? Would you have taken this opportunity, this time that we've set aside today, um, and would you have opened a door in this room? If there's some that maybe they've never believed this good news, and, and now's the day they, they know... That, you love and care for them, and you sent your son to die for them. May this be the day their heart is opened, and this door has been uh, an, an opening, an opportunity for the good news to be shared. Would you use the, the flawed and feeble words that come out of my own mouth to become a good and wise investment by which people hear the encouragement that you are good and loving? We thank you for what you've already done. We know this is true. God, I've never seen any group of people this caring, this loving, this forgiving, this gracious, and this inviting. Um, and so I'm thankful even now for the ways in which what we're praying for is already becoming a reality. So keep doing it, Lord, and we'll give you the glory for it. Amen.